Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now let's dig in. T here. I hope you guys are having a great day. I want to talk today about the Brian Koberger case, his trial for the charges he's facing in connection with the deaths of Zana Cronado, Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonsalves is scheduled for October. However, it seems unlikely that it will take place that soon. The prosecution has said they will seek the death penalty. This means that if Koberger is found guilty, then the jurors will have to attend a separate proceeding post the trial to vote on whether or not to indeed impose the death penalty. In Idaho, the death penalty is reserved for crimes that are particularly heinous. Recently, Fox News had attorney and former New York Police Department inspector Paul Morrow on to talk about the case. Morrow said that in a case that is as, quote, psychopathic and horrific as this one, the jurors are going to be okay with imposing death. And most of the other experts I've been watching on YouTube YouTube, who've weighed in on this as to whether it will be difficult to get jurors to sentence Koberger to death, say it will not be difficult. We've all heard at least one expert say that if any crime warrants the death penalty, it's this one. Morrow also talked about what we can surmise about the strategy of Koberger's defense team. Morrow said he believes the defense is currently on what he called a fishing expedition in an effort to fend off what he described as an octillion to one DNA match. The DNA match he's referring to there, as you likely know, is the match between the DNA on the leather sheath and the DNA that came from a cheek swab done on Brian Koberger when he was arrested in Pennsylvania. Morrow explained the fishing expedition analogy like this. He said the defense is, quote, casting around for something they can latch onto to take the narrative off the table relative to their defendant, end quote. Basically, what Morrow is saying, I think, is that because the DNA match is so damning for Koberger, the defense is fishing about for some way to raise other issues that could create reasonable doubt. Three issues the defense team seems to be focused on are, one, highlighting the three sources of unidentified male DNA that were found at the crime scene. Two of those DNA sources were found inside the house at 1122 King Road, and one was found on a black glove that was on the ground outside the home. The second issue the defense will likely use is putting the police officers who worked on the investigation on trial, meaning attacking them for any potential deviations they made when working the investigation. Things like, did they follow the strict protocols they were trained to use when realizing that they were standing in a crime scene? Did they inter Interview the witnesses following the proper rules? Did they handle any evidence they came upon in such a way that it wasn't contaminated? Did they get those friends out of the crime scene as soon as they realized they were in a crime scene on the morning of November 31st, 
13, 2022. And a third area the defense seems to be focusing on is the white Hyundai Elantra and how investigators came to be so certain that the blurred images of a white sedan driving around Moscow, Idaho, around 4 a.m. on November 13th was indeed an Elantra, and that Brian Koberger was the person behind the wheel. We know that those images are so grainy that you can't see the driver's face. You also can't see any license plates on it. The FBI expert who initially said it was a 2011 to 2013 Elantra later changed it to a 2011 to 2016 Elantra. I think the FBI expert will likely be able to show all the unique features he saw in the images that led to the conclusion that it was a Hyundai Elantra. But the defense is going to try to poke holes in that conclusion. Morrow feels like it's going to be very difficult for the defense to explain away Brian Koberger's DNA being found at the crime scene. Morrow stated that the odds of the DNA being found on the sheath in the bed with two of the victims and that from Koberger's cheek swab matching anyone else were, quote, once again, octillion to one. And he emphasized how strong the match is by saying that those odds represent, quote, more than the grains of sand on planet Earth. So that's the smoking gun evidence that the defense is going to have to try to poke holes in. And that's why they're currently researching things like the three officers' training records and comparing what they were trained to do versus what they actually did. The fishing analogy means they can try to catch a fish doing all this research, but they may come up with a great big nothing burger. Let's go back to that black glove that was found outside the crime scene house and that had unidentified male DNA on it. Do you guys remember when Chris McDonough of the interview room visited Moscow, Idaho after the crime to check out the area? He noticed a black glove partially hidden under leaves and snow within the area protected by crime scene tape outside the house. McDonough pointed it out to the officer who was there to keep the scene secure. Here's footage of that moment from the interview room. I want to all right, so this is the, the old homicide guy in me. Uh, I actually found a glove and turned it, uh, I pointed it out to the officer who was there securing the scene. And they came and they collected it. Uh, so this has been, you know, a very heavy scene as a whole. But if you'll notice underneath that, um, those leaves there in the snow, uh, you'll see here, I'll point it out for you, uh, that I discovered this glove and fortunately they collected it. And, the officer and it was, should be noted, it yeah. should be noted, you could see this standing on the public um, road. This wasn't, nobody crossed any lines, so you could just visibly see it right from the road. Yeah, and so a couple thoughts come to mind. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing, right? I'm saying, fortunately, it's still on the other side of the tape, and so they still had control of that scene. Uh, the officer that was there, obviously, they didn't know about it because he came over and photographed it, and he talked to the, the evidence, the head evidence tech, uh, and immediately, you know, later they, they'd come out and got it. 
So here's the question. Is this from the night? Is it random? I.e. somebody missed the trash can and they were walking by and they threw it, you know, missed the trash can. Is the suspect taunting the authorities by, you know, placing something like this, hypothetically? Either way, there's a glove. And it was collected um, after I brought it to their attention. And the, we had a great chat and the guy asked me, you know, some some things. And I, you know, shared essentially my bio and he went, thank you. I said, there you go. So you'll see it here a little bit clearer. I did not touch it. I brought it clearly. There it is to the left. Remember, I'm from Southern California and we know the value of gloves. One glove. <laughs> I.e. Nicole Simpson. Okay. Right. And it's it's definitely worth pointing out that we don't know how long it's been there. Obviously, don't know who it belongs to. Um, and police made a note of it and collected it and, and did their thing. So... And we may we may never know. There he is, right there. Is the owner of that? So I'm wondering if the investigators compared the DNA on that glove to all the crime scene investigators, or CSIs as they're called, who are working the scene. I'm also wondering if the glove was the same type used by the CSIs. And if not, is it the same type of black glove that was found in Brian Koberger's apartment in Pullman, Washington? You may recall that one nitrate-type black glove was seized from his apartment on the campus of Washington. State University? Or was it the same type of glove as the ones found at Koberger's parents' house in Pennsylvania? The investigators jotted down black gloves on the list of items seized from the Koberger family home. But again, Koberger's DNA was not on this black glove found by Chris McDonough. The defense said the male DNA on it belongs to an unidentified person. This begs the question, did another male either assist Koberger, allegedly, in carrying out the crime, or did another male carry out the crime himself and then implicate Koberger? by leaving a leather sheath with Koberger's DNA on it smack in the middle of the crime scene. The defense said that these three sources of unidentified male DNA were not run through CODIS by the state's investigators. CODIS, in case you don't know, is the Combined DNA Index System that includes DNA profiles from convicted offenders, unsolved crime scene evidence, and missing persons. I think the defense has a valid point if that's true. Why wouldn't they? They run those three sources of unidentified DNA through CODIS. Is this where the defense will say something akin to the state's investigators were so hyper-focused on Brian Koberger that they failed to consider other suspects and they failed to do their due diligence when dealing with this unidentified DNA? It sounds like the defense is going to capitalize on that unidentified male DNA, saying it's possible some other guy than Brian Koberger committed the crime. 
despite Koberger's DNA being on that leather sheath. But there could be perfectly normal reasons for these three sources of male DNA being at the crime scene. It could belong to male friends of the students who were there at one point for a party. We know it was a party house, and we saw how a lot of people were inside that house, sometimes when none of the female inhabitants were home. There could have been guys inside 1122 King Road that none of the girls even knew. As for the DNA on the black glove Chris McDonough found, that could just as easily belong to a factory worker in China who helped produce and or package the glove. Although I have to believe that whoever put on the glove is the person who left the most DNA on it. Personally, I like to follow Occam's razor, which says that the simplest explanation is likely the truth. I don't believe the leather sheath was planted at the scene to implicate Brian Koberger. That scheme is just a tad too complicated for me to buy. And I also think the unidentified male DNA inside the house likely does belong to some college guys who were at the house prior to the crime. The glove, again, is a little trickier to explain if the DNA on it doesn't belong to Koberger and it doesn't belong to any of the CSIs, then you have to wonder why anyone else would have been wearing a black glove on that particular property. This stuff is why I can't wait for the trial. I want to see how the prosecution and defense explain away this unidentified DNA. Whose experts will be the most effective on the stand? At the end of the day, it's what the jurors take away from the testimony that counts. Who do the jurors believe? Which expert did they find the easiest to understand and the most credible? So much in a trial depends on how the evidence is presented and how the jurors drink it in and process it. Moving on to the training records the defense has asked for, for three of the police officers who worked on the investigation and who the defense is saying, quote, conducted critical interviews with witnesses and made decisions regarding the investigation, end quote. The defense also said this, There is a heightened standard now that the state has announced its intent to seek the death penalty, and these are very relevant pieces of information, end quote. This is another tactic the defense will likely try to use against the prosecution. If the defense can find out how those officers were trained, meaning what methods they were trained to follow when working on investigations, and if their work on the Koberger investigation didn't follow the exact same methods, the defense may be able to discredit their skills and say things like they didn't properly secure the crime scene or they used improper tactics when interviewing witnesses. By the way, Judge John Judge decided that the defense should get those training records for these three specific officers the defense cited. And the prosecution has until July 14th, which is coincidentally Bastille Day in France, to get them that information. Paul Morrow believes the reason the defense wants this information is because they're likely going to put those three officers on trial, much like Officer Mark Furman was put on trial during the O.J. Simpson trial. Ann Taylor, Koberger's lead attorney, said that her team wants the training records to better understand the three police officers' process and the decisions they made with evidence in the case. Taylor also said that two of the officers are from the Idaho State Police and one of them 
is from the Moscow Police Department, and all three officers, in Taylor's words, played a critical role in the investigation. The first of the three officers in question interviewed witnesses at the crime scene. I'm assuming that this would have been one of the first responding officers who arrived at 1122 King Road on Sunday, November 13th, right after the 911 call was made. This officer also worked on the search for the white Hyundai Elantra. The second officer interviewed key witnesses who are expected to testify during the trial. I'm assuming whoever the second officer is, he probably spoke to survivors Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funk. To me, Dylan is a key witness since she's the only person that we know of who saw the masked man clad in black inside the house. The third officer is said to have attended the victim's autopsies, conducted multiple interviews of key witnesses after Koberger's arrest, and made decisions about which tips made to law enforcement warranted further investigation. Now, the prosecution, who did not want to share the three officers' training records with the defense, argued that the officers are not material to their case, and they likely will not be called to testify at trial. Not material to the case means the prosecution doesn't think it's important relevant or significant information for the case, that how these officers were trained is not evidence that is needed for the jury to decide if Brian Koberger is guilty of committing the crime. In trying to determine which Moscow Police Department officer the defense wants training records for, I went back to the affidavit for Brian Koberger's arrest. Corporal Brett Payne of the Moscow PD is the one who wrote the affidavit. He'd been a police officer for four years when he wrote that affidavit. Also, he, along with Sergeant Blaker of the Moscow PD, arrived at the crime scene house at 4 p.m. on November 13th to assist with the crime scene security and the processing of the crime scene. So officers Payne and Blaker were not among the first police officers to arrive at the crime scene that day. The first officers would have arrived around noon, and an Officer Smith of the Moscow PD was one of them. You may recall that Officer Payne wrote that upon his and Sergeant Blaker's arrival at the scene at 4 p.m., the Idaho State Police's, or ISP's, forensic team was already on the scene and was preparing to process it. Officer Payne wrote that Moscow PD Officer Smith walked Officers Payne and Officer Blaker through the crime scene. I'm thinking Officer Smith may be the Moscow PD officer that the defense team wants training records for. Smith was there right after the 911 call was made. He would have spoken to Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funk, as well as the other friends that had come over that morning before anyone dialed 911. As for the two Idaho State Police officers that the defense wants to see training records for, that's anyone's guess at this point. At first, I thought maybe they worked in the Idaho State lab where the DNA was initially processed, but then I thought people working at the lab aren't going to be interviewing key witnesses and attending the victim's autopsies. I hope this gives you some things to ponder for today, and I'll see you next time on Bed Crime Stories. Do me a favor, please hit that like button. It's a free way you can help your girl. Subscribe to the channel so that you get notifications of new videos, and I'll see you next time.